Book of Revelation and chapter 4. Revelation 4. And we're going to look at the chapter this morning. Um, and uh, we're, let's read it together. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the, vo the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were Twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightnings, and rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in the front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. Well, like I said, we're going to... Uh, uh, I won't say cover the whole text, but we're going to survey this chapter uh, uh, this morning as we continue in our study of the book of Revelation. We've just spent the past few months going through the letters of, uh, of Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor. Churches uh, that uh, uh, we uh, outlined there in the last number of months with a variety of challenges and sins. And, uh, and we saw that all of those churches taken together uh, really uh, picture for us the church in all ages. The church down through the centuries, even up to the present day. And we saw that there was much for us in each one of those letters to, to challenge us and to speak to us. That same idea is found for us in the fourth chapter. The fourth chapter of, 
of uh, Revelation is not a picture of something that was simply at the time of John, but is is a picture of something that is. It's an ongoing reality. It's a window that is opened up for us into the very throne room of heaven. As we saw, the churches were facing uh, unspeakable challenges. Living under the shadow of Satan's throne. Uh, being uh, influenced by demonic powers even within the very congregation of the church. And so the, the challenges of those churches were great. But as the language of Revelation tells us, as, as that imagery from much of the Old Testament is taken and, and used by the book of Revelation, it reminds us these th- that these things have always been the case with God's people. That these challenges that the churches face, uh, the church faces today. And the church faced even before those churches existed. That's why we find so many Old Testament references to Jezebel and Balaam and many of these other people uh, from back in the Old Testament times. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that's very much the picture of the book of Revelation. It's a book of cycles. It's, It's showing us that these things have been, they are, and they will continue to be until the time Jesus comes back. But what do we do in the meantime? What do we do uh, in the midst of all of that? Again, it's not a new message that Jesus gives to His church. We read Ezekiel chapter 1, where the children of Israel were in the process of being carted off to Babylon. It had started... Ezekiel was now himself a a captive, but Ezekiel was going to prophesy the ultimate demise of the city of Jerusalem and the captivity of Judah. And at various points throughout the history of God's people, God, as it were, opened up heaven itself to encourage them and bless them to show them that these things were not insurmountable. That He was still in control of world history and of their lives. We see it with uh, um, uh, in Isaiah chapter 6. In those famous words, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. In a time where a beloved king had passed from them, and now that they were entering into a time of uncertainty, much like we do today, oftentimes when a, a head of state is taken out very quickly or an election is held and a new leader comes in, the markets are all in upheaval and, and, and there's a kind of an unsettledness that takes over. And that was true in the history of God's people. It was true in the time of the fall of Babylon. Where do we go from here? This seems pretty ultimate. The... Uh, the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, were prophesying the destruction of the temple, the, the carting away of God's people into a land where they spoke a foreign language. Where do you go from there? Isn't that the ultimate end of all things? And uh, we have often asked that question over the years, both globally and personally. 
Maybe you're feeling that now. Maybe you have felt that in your life, that you feel trapped or you feel that there's no way of getting beyond this or you can't see anything good in this. Has God left me? Has God forsaken me? Those were the questions that uh, God's people asked in all ages, not least of which the, uh, the apostles themselves asked those questions. We thought He was the one. Right? The two on the road to Emmaus after Jesus had died. And uh, there they were. And Jesus comes alongside them as a stranger and asks them, what are these things that you're talking about? We thought. Are you a stranger? Have you not heard? We thought that this Jesus was the one to deliver our people. That all seems so hopeless. And into the midst of that, even here in the book of Revelation, at the outset of the book, uh, God opens the door of heaven. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, that is the voice of Jesus who was speaking to him, which I heard speaking unto me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. This chapter initiates this series of visions and prophecies that are going to fall upon the world. We'll see in chapter 5 where Jesus is given the scroll of the book and He begins to open that scroll and unleash upon the world all the events from that moment to the present day and until the time He comes back. And uh, in that... In that uh, situation, we find God giving His people a rock to stand on. Gives them a vision of His sovereignty. That even in the midst of all of that upheaval, all in the midst of those uh, curses that will be unleashed upon the world, the war, the famine, and all of these things, the people of God are not to despair. And so this chapter and chapter 5 initiate that throughout the, for several chapters on in the book of Revelation. And yet at the beginning of that, at the beginning of the unfolding of that, God seeks to impress upon John and impress upon us the fact that He is in control. And that is seen so poignantly for us there in Verse 1, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the voice of one who I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And he sees, at once I was in the Spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven. So he's saying that all of these things will unfold, but understand this first. Interpret all of these events in the world globally and in your life with this premise first, that there is a throne in heaven and that it is occupied by God. The word throne occurs in chapters 4 and 5 some 19 times. That's quite extraordinary. If I said something 19 times to you over... Uh, the course of these few minutes that we have this morning, you would say, well, that must be a pretty important 
area of the message. And this is what John uh, is recording for us here in these two chapters. That the throne then becomes the centerpiece of understanding the whole of the book of Revelation. Without that, we are just left in a, a fearful state. The book indeed becomes quite terrifying for us. But it becomes a blessing rather, as it, we said at the outset, that blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. It is blessed when we understand that it begins with a throne. That the unleashing of all of these world events is uh, seen in terms of the control of God over all of world history. And so God is giving to John uh, a, a vision of what is real. That's something that we often uh, mistake. Paul says that we are to look unto those things which are unseen. That's a spiritual discipline. To see the unseen. Moses saw the unseen, didn't he? He was commended as a man of faith by seeing Christ by seeing the reward. He saw Him who was unseen. Abraham saw Him who was unseen. And Jesus is bringing John into the throne room of heaven to see those things which are unseen. We are to look at the things which are unseen, not the things that are seen. The things which are eternal and not temporal. And the challenge is, to dismiss the things that are unseen and say that, are, that they're not as real as the things that we can handle and taste and touch. And this is the reality that John is invited into now. To see something that is just as real as the things that you handle and see before you hear. And to live in that. To build your life around those truths and around that reality. To build your life around the truth of this throne room and of what's going on there. Not what happened 2,000 years ago in a vision, but what John is... He's, he's describing things that are ongoing. He's describing the normal practice of heaven. Now, there's much in the chapter that is... Uh, symbolic imagery that, that is being used to convey uh, a greater truth. But the heart of the reality is that there is worship around the throne of God by all those in heaven giving God glory and honor and praise for who He is. And that is what this chapter is really conveying to us. And so John, as it were, has the curtain pulled back so that he can see, so that he can take that message then to the church and convey to them the victory that they are a part of. We see this uh, again uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, you remember in the ministry of Elisha where the, an invading army was coming against them and his young servant was overwhelmed with fear. And he, he thought, this is the end. We're surrounded. And Elisha prays, Lord, open up his eyes. Open up his eyes that he may see. And, and 
when he did, the hills around were surrounded with the armies of God. In other words, the young man was invited in to see something that was just as real as the opposing army. That the power was greater than the power that, they could, that he could see with his eyes. This is exactly what's going on here. The church is facing unprecedented attacks. As chapter 12 tells us that the, 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 the devil has come down to the earth with great fury because he knows his time is short. He's like a cornered rat. And because of that, he has come down with great fury to the earth. And the church then has to cope with that. And how do they cope with that? They must be given this vision as God gave the people of Isaiah's day a vision of the exalted Lord. As Ezekiel gave the, the captives that vision of the glory of God in the early stages of their captivity. Where Daniel and his friends were given the, those, uh, an understanding into the the, the reality of what Nebuchadnezzar really was. And what, the, what world history held out in terms of the comings and goings of the kingdoms of the world and the ultimate triumph of the Gospel and of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. So it is, a, it is something that repeats itself again and again and again. And so it is for us. He says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Notice what he says there. I will show you what must take place. Not what could take place. Not what might take place. But will take place. These are things that are spoken of by God. Determined by God. Decreed by God. And they will be fulfilled. You might say, is there any precedent to that? Has that ever happened before where God has promised and it came true? Of course. We can go back into the whole of the Old Testament history and thinking about the prophecies of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus. These were all things that must take place according to the prophets. It shall come to pass in the latter days, says the prophets. And they prophesy where Jesus is going to be born. It prophesies the manner of His life. It prophesies the manner of His death in such amazing detail. His resurrection. The worldwide spread of the Gospel in the Psalms and in the Prophets and all throughout the Old Testament. These are things that must take place. And they did take place. And we are here because they have taken place. And it is with that we go back to this passage and with great confidence say, here is Jesus again saying, these things must take place. That was one of the great sayings of Jesus in His own life, wasn't it? These things must happen that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus knew that His own life was shaped by the Word of God. That He had a Word-shaped 
consciousness, a word-shaped heart, a word-shaped life. He lived according to that premise. These things which must come to pass. Not the things that will be easy. Not the things that will be, uh, uh, you know, very uh, 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 um, pleasant. But the things nevertheless that must come to pass at the hand of a wise, loving, heavenly Father. Come up here and I will show you what must take place. Isn't that... That, that, in a sense, is really what goes on every Sunday. Where Jesus comes and invites us, come up here and I will show you the things that must take place. He opens up to us His Word. At once I was in the Spirit. Again, John is seeing himself much like the Old Testament prophets who were carried along by the Spirit of God and wrote down what they saw and heard. So he was in the Spirit. He was carried along by the Spirit. And he said at once, uh, I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Amidst everything, there was one who occupied this throne. It speaks of God's power, God's sovereignty. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, commentators, when they look at some of the imagery in this chapter, have shades of interpretation on what to make of some of these things. What do we make of the fact that it's jasper and carnelian? What do we make of the rainbow and so on? And people are divided on that. But I don't think John would have us simply major on particular parts of this chapter in terms of the, you know, can we appreciate what the chapter as a whole is saying without nailing down exactly what each thing means. I think what he is doing is taking it all together. Even the prophet himself used words like had the appearance of or it was like this or that. What John is really doing is showing us here the glory of God. It's not a literal picture of what God looks like. God is a spirit. But John is using this imagery and symbolism to describe something more profound to us. The glory of God. And that is opened up for us, really, in the worship that comes at the end of the chapter. Worthy are You, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. It speaks to us of God's beauty. God's glory. And, God's... and so people have tried to in the Bible, describe the glory of God in, in some form or another and have fallen short of that. And have had to use words like, I saw what seemed to be like. Or it had the appearance of. In other words, 
Human language and human imagery falls short always of the glory of God. You can take the highest and best that man has and it will never adequately describe what God is like. Even the book of Revelation when it talks about heaven and so on, talking about streets paved with gold and things like that. Are we to think that the new heavens and the new earth, instead of asphalt, you know, we're, we're actually going to be driving our car down the streets of gold and so on? No. What it's trying to get across to us is that being in God's presence and knowing God and being a part of His kingdom far surpasses anything than this world has. Even the highest and best, like jasper and carnelian and gold or whatever. It's, in other words, it's pulling in all the highest and the best that the world has and says, it's like this, but it's so much more. And that's seen for us in these words, holy, holy, holy. The words there mean completely indescribable, completely other, completely beyond the means of human description. How do we categorize God? How do we think about God? He's beyond our wildest imagination. You can't put God in a box. His glory is indescribable. And so John uses these images. Just as Ezekiel used images in that first chapter to describe in some form the glory of God. This, he said, is the glory of God. And so that's really what he's getting at in using that kind of language. It's not a literal picture of God. That's why the second commandment tells us that we're not to make pictures of God. Because God is a spirit. He's indescribable. And the moment you put pen to paper, you are taking away from God. You're attacking the nature of God when you begin to capture Him in some limited form. But the, the revelation here takes the highest and best and says, He is the glory which I saw was like this, but above and beyond. So Paul talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. They cannot be contained they cannot be described. And this is the language which he uses to try to attempt to describe the majesty of God. Psalm 96 says, Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Then he goes on to talk about this rainbow. He says, and there was a rainbow that had an appearance of an emerald. And so, again, it, if we see Revelation as so heavy laden with Old Testament imagery, it doesn't take much to figure out what John is referring to here. Or what he's seeing here. The rainbow in the Bible is a reference back to uh, the flood. Where after the flood, after the flood water subsided, God put a bow in the sky to say that He would never destroy the earth again with a flood. It speaks of His faithfulness and His goodness. And that faithfulness is seen for us ultimately in 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the highest expression of God's faithfulness. His promise that He would send a Redeemer, send a Messiah, send a Savior to the world. And He kept that promise. God is faithful. God is good. And He has shown that in the beauty of His Son. The beauty of the cross. The beauty of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is saying, I'm so faithful to My promises that I will kill My Son in order to bring them to pass. I will sacrifice My Son to show My faithfulness and My commitment to My covenant. And that's exactly what He did. He goes on to describe what he sees in this throne room. And around the throne were the 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed with white garments and white, uh, with golden crowns on their heads. And we'll come back to that in a moment. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass. This is all describing, again, what John is seeing when he comes in. The glorious nature of the throne room of heaven. He says in verse 5, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Again, we, just as, with the, 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 as the rainbow took us back to Noah, and the, a picture of the faithfulness of God, and the restoration after destruction. So, this language takes us back to Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments. And we see there the uh, uh, unveiling of the glory and the holiness of God as He gives His law. And there on that mountain, we see lightning and thunder and earthquakes and all the rest of it all taken together to create an impression in the people's minds that God is holy. And God, you don't simply waltz into the presence of God. It's a warning to us all that we think about the one before whom we will one day stand. Am I ready to stand? We, when we think about world leaders, we think about the queen or the prime minister or the president or whoever it is, we give thought to what we're going to say, what we're going to wear, how we're going to behave ourselves, and so on. And yet, so few think about or have a wrong idea of what it means to stand in the presence of God or come before God. And John is given a vision here of God's holiness. So that we may not presume, that we may not presume to think that we are able in and of ourselves to stand before God on our own. But we must come through the One. We must come in the name of the One who endured that fire from heaven, who, in, who was forsaken on the cross, who had the sins of His people laid upon Him, where the fire fell in all its fury, we must come through Him. Through the One who showed and demonstrated through His death on the cross the holiness of God in a way unlike any other episode in all of history, even Sinai. You don't get 
a picture of God's holiness, even in Sinai or any Old Testament account, the way you do on the cross. And there we say, look at how holy God is. But there too, we never see the love of God so epitomized as we do on the cross. And nevertheless, this is what John sees. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, the, the picture is of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have the Son bringing John in. We have the vision of God's glory. We have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As we saw in, in uh, the, chapter 1. Seven spirits of God. Well, we know the word seven is a word that is a perfect number that describes the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. We, also, we already made reference to this early on in, in our first psalm. Where earth is characterized by upheavals and as we'll see, wars and famine and all the rest of it. Where the devil has come down with great fury, heaven in the presence of God is peaceful. A place where God reigns supreme. And that is pictured for us, I believe, in, these, uh, in this image of a sea of glass like crystal. Everything's calm. That's the way it was when Jesus calmed the storm. He spoke to the wind and the waves and everything was unspeakably calm. Fulfilling the words of Psalm 93. The Lord on high, is a, he, he is above the waters. He stands upon the waters. He's, he has dominion over the waters. He makes the waters to be still. And this is the picture that is given of heaven itself. A place of peace. A place where, where evil is, uh, has no place whatsoever. He goes on. He says, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Well, uh, let's go back again to verse 4. And around the throne were 24, thro uh, 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So on the one hand, we have a description of the throne room of heaven. What John sees when he, when he gets there. How that ought to speak to the church and speak to us individually about the glory of God, the power and sovereignty of God, the faithfulness and goodness of God. Then you hear of this congregation that is before the throne. And you have these 24 elders. And again, people speculate, what does this, these 24 elders mean? Well, when you look at the Word of God, you have certain groups that fall into, into sections of 12, don't you? You have the 12 tribes of Israel. You have the 12 apostles of the Lamb spoken of in the book of Revelation. When you bring these two together, they form one whole group that I think we're, we're seeing here. Representing the full complement of God's people in all ages from both Old and New Testament, the saints of God gathered together before the, 
the, the throne. And they are those who are given robes. What are these robes? This is the robes of redemption that Jesus gives to each one who believes. The Bible says that not just our sins, but all our righteousness, all our good things are like filthy rags before God. And we can't stand before this God in that way at all. And so those garments must be taken off. And we must be given the robes of Christ's righteousness. We must be washed in His blood and given the robes of righteousness which we wear. And this is who these people are. They are not simply uh, 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 cherubim or uh, people like that, but they're people who are defined as those who are clothed in white with golden crowns on their head. They are described, as is described throughout the Word of God, of people who have received redemption and reward from the Lord Jesus. Paul says, there is laid up for me now a crown of righteousness which the King will give to me uh, at His appearing. And so here we find the complement, full complement I believe, of God's people in all ages. Just as we come to Revelation chapter 7, we see that number of the 144,000. Again, it's a perfect picture of the redeemed. We see on the flip side of that, the, the, the great a multitude which no man can number. That's from a human perspective. But from the heavenly perspective, it is 12 times 12 times 1,000. 144,000. It's the perfect complement of God's people. And that's what we're seeing here with these 24 elders on thrones. We shall reign with Him. Raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. So that in the ages to come, we might show forth the exceeding riches of His grace, says Paul. This is the congregation who are gathered before uh, the Lamb. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Again, we read these things and we're mystified by these images that John is seeing. And what do we make of all of these things? Well, again, like a, as with some of these other elements in the chapter, there is a diversity of opinion on what they mean. But I think the best understanding I could get out of this was from a commentator by the name of Herman Hoeksema, who said that four is the number that is symbolic of creation in all its fullness. So you have the 24 elders. Now you have creation itself. He says, he goes on to say, think of the four winds of heaven or the four corners of the earth. In their number, they represent the entire creation. The four corners of the earth, you're saying... The whole of creation. The four winds of heaven. Again, you're thinking of the entirety. And that these four creatures, Hoxama goes on to say, are representative of the best in all of those areas. He says, what the lion is among the beasts of the field, 
The ox is among the cattle. Man is among the intelligent creatures and the eagle among the birds. In other words, these are dominant animals in all their field and they together represent the whole of creation. But they're gathered around the throne. As much as we exalt these creatures like the 24 elders and the, or the four creatures, they're still, where are they? Gathered around the throne. Worshipping before the Lamb. And they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. This vision, this understanding that they have leads them to this spontaneous and involuntary proclamation of God's glory. One person has said that to worship is to let the worth and wonder of God sink in so that you respond in a wholehearted reorientation of your life. And this is what I was saying at the beginning. We let this, we sh we're, we're shaped around this. These creatures' greatness are defined by their place around the throne. And our greatness, our dignity, our purpose, and all that we are is shaped by our proximity to this. Let my people go. Why? That they might worship me. Those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. For such the Father is seeking. That's who we are. That, when we're brought into a throne room of, of worship and praise, we're seeing ourselves there. The four and twenty elders are not just some elite group. But they're representatives of all of God's people. Praising Him for who He is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Praising Him for His eternal nature. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, there you, you get again the eternal nature of God, which is to be praised. You see, these, these things inform our, pray, our prayers, don't they? How terrible of us if we're praying for 10-15 minutes. Well, I can't think of anything more to say. I guess that's it. You, you go to the Psalms. You go to Revelation. You praise God that He's eternal. That He's faithful. That He's good. That He's holy. This is what they're doing. And it's informing our worship to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. That's one of the things that science is is showing us. Science is not attacking the Christian faith today. Some scientists are. Some atheists are. But the more we delve into science and the expanse of the universe, the more this becomes a more richer experience. You created that. A universe with billions of galaxies, each one millions of light years apart containing billions of stars where you can fit millions of our suns into some of the biggest stars that there are. You created all of that. And these creatures have that understanding of that. You created all things and by your will they existed and they were created. How then do you see Nero or the emperor 
or your worst enemy in the light of God. James Montgomery Boyce, in a recent book that was published by him, not by him, he has passed on, but some of his writings that were published on Revelation, he, sa he says basically what Revelation is showing here is that the emperor has no clothes. That the powers that be have no clothes in the light of the throne room of God, of what God is showing us. And even the great things that stand against you and I, the things that seem insurmountable, they have no ultimate power over us. Even our sin, because we have a Savior. The Lamb in the midst of the throne, which we'll go on to see in chapter 5. I saw a Lamb looking as if it had been slain. And they're the people of God. They don't have to run from the holiness of God. They don't have to be terrified by the holiness of God. But we were able to be like the, the, these creatures. We're, we're able to stand in God's presence and praise Him for it because now we have been washed, cleansed, justified by Christ. And so, uh, what does this say about our hearts before God this morning? God, again, is opening these things up to us. He's pulling back the curtain, showing us the throne room of heaven and saying, this is what's going on right now. This is the present reality. This is why they are praising God. They cease not day and night to praise God. You see, we are called to be a people of worship here on earth. Every opportunity we have, we ought to be in the house of God, worshiping Him. Not saying, what is the least I can do? What's the least that I can get away with? That doesn't stand in the light of this. They cease not day and night to give thanks and praise to God. Glory and honor. That's our calling here, friends. And if that's what's going on up in heaven, and if God's will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and if worship is our greatest calling... Ought not worship to be our highest priority in the week, especially on the Lord's Day, to come into the house of God, to lift up our hearts to Him and to praise Him who lives forever, who created all things, who is faithful to His people, who is unspeakably glorious. May God give us that heavenly vision today. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, you have come to Mount Zion. City of the living God, to an innumerable company of angels, to the spirits of just man made perfect. That's where you have come. We are gathered with them. And may our hearts be united with them in heart and mind to honor Him and worship Him the way they do. Let us pray. Lord, as we close this morning, we thank You that You have not left us without a vision of the very throne room of heaven. Father, You have invited us to come in and through Your Word to understand those things which are real and true just as much as the things that we see around us with our own eyes. Father, help us then to look at the things which are unseen, the things which are eternal. Oh, Father, that our, our lives, our minds, our hearts, our decisions, everything may be shaped by the One upon that throne. We ask it in the name of Jesus, Your Son. Amen. Amen. <coughs>